this is not just any child. This isn't just any son. This is the son. This is the son that was promised in Psalm 2. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. And the very ends of the earth is your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son. This is the Son who is revealed in Luke 1. This is the angel talking, talking to Mary. He says, He will be great, and He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give Him the throne of His father David. And back to Isaiah and the government will be on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. So what do we see here? Wisdom, Wonderful Counselor. The, it's wisdom beyond human capabilities. Just like I read in that previous passage from, chap, from chapter 11. Mighty God. That term, mighty God, is what I showed you in that vision in chapter 6. That's the mighty God. And this son who is to be born, he will be called the mighty God. And then it says he will be the everlasting father, that kind protector of his people. And then finally he will be the prince of peace, the increase of his government. There will be no end to his peace. He will bring peace, not just any peace, shalom. This deep, eternal, permanent well-being for all of God's people. That's, that's the depth of shalom. And it will be not just to the remnant from Israel. This is going to be for all the nations, including, hey, Gentiles. Okay? This had been promised long ago. Chapter 2, verse 4. And he will judge between the nations and he will render decisions for many peoples and they will hammer their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Well, that's never happened in our lifetime. It won't happen under this current reign, not until Christ comes and he is established in permanence as the eternal judge of the nations. But then we also see, I read you that passage from uh, chapter 11, but Paul spoke about this in Romans. Romans 15, Paul quoting from Isaiah. <laughs> there shall come from the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, and in him shall the Gentiles hope. Christ, the Messiah, is our hope. He's why we're all here. We mentioned that Isaiah is about the gospel message. The gospel message is about, a guilt, is about guilt taken away. God's grace will ensure that his people, his called people, will enjoy his eternal messianic kingdom and will fulfill the purpose for which he's called them. This was first shown in Isaiah 6 that I showed you. That was the, the, sim, the symbolism of that vision. In chapters 7 through 9, Isaiah gives the same message to the people of Judah. That's the southern kingdom. Then in chapters 9 through 11, he gives that same message to the people of Israel in the northern kingdom. And then he talks about all of God's people coming to the wells of salvation. Then we get a series of oracles, okay? Chapters 13 through 27. 
Babylon, Assyria, the whole list, all the way down, and ultimately the whole earth. Why? Why the oracles? The oracles are God sowing his sovereignty over all of these nations. These were all the nations surrounding Israel, causing all of their problems. And God issues an, or an oracle to each of them and says, you rising and falling is all under my hand. Everything that happens is under my control. And you, in your evilness, reject me. You follow your foreign gods. You're all going to come to nothing. So every one of these oracles are just establishing the sovereignty and the ultimate judgment of God. We go forward to chapter uh, 25. We see the fullness of God's redemption. Chapter 25 starts and says, O oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name. God's redemption is a personal redemption. If you're here today and you can't say, Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name. If we can't say I, then we have not experienced the personal redemption from God. We see in chapter 25, it talks about the, the wonderful things that God's going to do. These are the remarkable acts of God. His supernatural interventions in the natural world, in human events. We already talked about that God is executing his plans that he says were formed of old. God didn't like have to change his plans midstream because of how man behaved. The plans were always there. From before creation, God knew everything that was going to transpire and all of the plans were formed and his eternal decree, everything's going to be executed. God is our stronghold. It's not a, not a city and that's what all the people, that's what they knew. They had all of their strength in their city, in their walls, and in all their military might. But God shows them that he's their stronghold. He is for all the peoples. In that chapter, it talks about the people coming to a great feast. It talks about death being swallowed up forever. It talks about God wiping away their tears and everyone living in perfect peace. This is the gospel message. This is the extent of God's redemption. And then we see an interesting series of chapters from chapters 28 through 33. Each of these sections start with a funny word. Ah! With an exclamation. No one's sure exactly what this word means, except that it introduces a God of action. So what immediately follows is God doing something. God controls history. He's moving events toward final judgment. We see that in chapter 34. And he's moving events toward final salvation. We see that in chapter 35. He's a powerful ally of his people, and he's greater than all earthly powers. Then we see the reverse of the curse. This is unbelievable news, particularly for uh, Israel because of how they've been ground, grounded in learnings from the early days. You guys know the curse. But listen to the wordings of the curse because we need to pay attention when we see it reversed. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, it says, Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till, till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. 
Paul talked about the hope for this terrible curse in Romans 8, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Here Paul is talking about faith. He says, look around you. You know your bodies ache. You know the world around you is not right. You know that God's creation is not perfect in its current form. But yet we hope. But we don't hope in what we see. There's no amount of apologetics that you can give to some person that can bring them to that place because they will never have all the pieces in their hand to say, okay, now I believe. This is where faith comes in to God's grace and his salvation, right? It's holding on to the things that we cannot see, the things that we don't fully understand. Look at the reverse of the curse, and we see this throughout chapter 35 of Isaiah. Listen to the reverse of the curse. And what we're looking for here, we're going to see contrasted. Weak hands, feeble knees, the blessing of strength. A wilderness and a desert, a blossoming, rejoicing, and singing. Blind, deaf, lame, see, hear, leap. Unclean, beast, sorrowful, holiness, redeemed, everlasting joy. Listen to chapter 35. The wilderness and the desert will be glad. And the Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come. He will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness, streams in the Arabah. The scorched land will become a pool. The thirsty ground will spring with water. In the haunt of jackals will be a resting place. Grass becomes reeds and rushes. A highway will be there, a roadway. It will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way, and fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go up on it. These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Then we get to this interesting story. So Hezekiah was the last king. It was bleak. Sennacherib had already done his destruction in the northern kingdom. And he's knocking on the door of Judah. There's no way, there's absolutely no way they could hold him back. 
This is at the time the most powerful military kingdom. And he is so bold, he is verbally mocking the almighty God outside of Jerusalem. And in fact, he was confused because good king Hezekiah had taken down all of the high places. He'd torn down all the idols and the, the worshiping uh, uh, high places to Asherah, etc. And Sennacherib came and said, ha ha, God's going to judge you. You've even taken down your places of worship. He didn't even get it. He thought Israel was abandoning God because they had torn down all of the worship places that the, the whole world had seen of them. He didn't understand that Hezekiah was bringing a, a point of repentance for the people at this time. We see in this story of Hezekiah that faith in God is rewarded by blessing. We see this initially, first two chapters of divine faithfulness. Because Hezekiah gets the people in his heart, in his heart, he returns to God. And um, he recognizes that God is our only hope. He has a beautiful prayer in these chapters that I, if you have a chance to read. And so Sennacherib's knocking on the door. They're about to come in. And I have the opportunity, as Isaiah, to say to Hezekiah, God's going to hear your prayer. He's going to protect you. Because no one else can. We don't have enough armies to hold this guy off, this Sennacherib. And so you know what happens overnight? An angel of the Lord goes into the camp and slaughters 185,000 of their soldiers. The soldiers wake up the next day and they're looking around them. They're all dead. So what do you think Sennacherib's going to do? Okay, we're out of here. That was a bad omen, right? You didn't even go to battle and 185,000 of your soldiers are dead. So they go back to Assyria. And then not only that, uh, we don't know what the internal turmoil was, but his, his own, I think it's his own sons, basically take him out. And so the prophecy that Isaiah gave that he would die by the sword comes, comes to fruition. This is divine faithfulness when the people return to the Lord. But then Hezekiah gets cocky. He's feeling great about his kingdom. Oh, we, we beat back Sennacherib. And so he's got a lot of other problem nations, and actually Babylon's starting to rise up. And they send an envoy over to Jerusalem. So what does Hezekiah do? Oh, come on in. We need to buddy up with these guys. This is the next uh, greatest uh, and, and uh, more worrisome nation. We need to like buddy up with them, make sure we're on their good side. So he brings them into Jerusalem, and he says, isn't it great? We have an awesome country. Look how much stuff we have. And he takes them and he has the gall to show them all of the gold and the treasures that the people have. What is wrong with him? The foolishness of Hezekiah and faithlessness. Why did he do that? Because he thought if he buddied up to Babylon, then maybe his kingdom would be preserved. He had just witnessed God's greatest at least at that time, preservation and protection in how he dealt with Sennacherib. And yet in his foolishness, he tries to buddy up to Babylon. Well, this is it. This is the end, okay? Hezekiah's foolish pride is the ultimate downfall. This was, the, this was literally the last hope of Judah, and it's all over after this. Well, we see God's encouragement. I read you from chapter 40 at the beginning. In chapter 41, the theme is, Fear not, I am with you. 
In chapters 42 through 52, we see God's chosen servant as the hope of the world. That Messiah who is being presented in Isaiah, we see the beautiful, what are called the servant songs, which all depict the character of the Messiah. We see that the Holy One blesses his sinful people through the suffering and the triumphant servant who removes the guilt before God by his sacrifice. The blessings of the covenant are uh, shown again in chapter 54. The old covenant, barren, desolate, they failed to bless the world. Remember, what was Abraham's calling? What was the nation of Israel to be? A blessing to all the nations was never fulfilled because of their faithlessness. They would be deserted, grieved, subject to wrath. And then the picture of the great, the new covenant, growing family, an enlarging tent, knowledge of the God fills the earth, called as a wife with great compassion and love. That's a beautiful depiction of the church. And then a covenant of peace. God cries out in chapter 55, Come, everyone, incline your ear, seek the Lord, call upon Him, return to the Lord. That's how we come to God. It's not because we're out there, we know the path. It's not because we've circled go and we've landed on a community chest and we can take that and we can put it in our back pocket. This is God calling to us. That's the only way to come to salvation. The triumph of God's grace. This is from chapter 55. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. All the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up uh, the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. The effects of the fall are corrected. How shall we now live? Well, he finishes the rest of the book giving us our instructions. Keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. That's why Hezekiah and the people were saved. Not because they were high and lifted up, but because they were contrite and they were lowly of heart, just like Isaiah's posture was when he was shown the vision of the Lord. And then, then there's a description of how the people are behaving, doing all the fasts, observing the Sabbath. And God says, is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the straps of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free? To break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? And when you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Who does this sound like? This is Jesus. This is almost Jesus' own words. When the Pharisees are railing against him about how they should be, how him and his disciples should be conducting their days, Jesus basically reads almost word for word from this. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath. That's not literally the Sabbath, but the, the spirit of the Sabbath. Not profaning it and keeping his fan from doing evil, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Doesn't this sound like what we talked about? 
The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. And then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. God is the one who saves. It's he who is faithful to his promises. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you, my words that I've put in your mouth, shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. That's our calling. As part of the new covenant, this is what we have. God's words will never depart from our mouth. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. All of the things that were exemplified in Isaiah's response before the Lord. Arise, shine, for your light has come. Lift up your eyes and see all they gather together from afar. A blessing to the nations. Your gates will be open continually. We see that in New Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, the gate, there's no gates anymore. They're open all the time because the nations of the world are streaming in to Zion. The Lord will be your everlasting light. It says you don't even need a sun anymore. No sun, no moon. Why? Because God's there. The everlasting light. Victory over evil for all time. We are the clay, you are the potter, we are all the work of your hand. And then finally in chapter 66, we see a picture of a new heavens and a new earth. You get the whole plan of God, the whole gospel story, the revelation of the Messiah in the book of Isaiah. So is it any wonder that Isaiah... Other than the book of Psalms, which is the Psalter of God's people, other than the book of Psalms, no other book is quoted more than Isaiah in the New Testament. Do you know how many times? Okay, 66 chapters. Guess how many times Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament? 66. Mind blown. Now, I know the chapters are kind of, you know, post, uh, post hoc, but anyways, I still think that's pretty cool. We've all heard the Messiah, right? Or at least we know what the Messiah is, the, the musical, right? I mean, guess what is the number one book that is used for the presentation of, for the text of the Messiah? It's Isaiah. It's an unbelievable book. This is our, our final thing. Draw near to me, hear this. From the beginning I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me in his spirit. This is Christ. I was there from the beginning with God and His Spirit. This is the Trinity. And then the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Now I'm going to show you something really cool. This happened in Luke chapter 4. Jesus goes to synagogue. And if you're of the right age, you had the right to go and read from the scrolls. 
And he came to Nazareth and and where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue of the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Oh, he did not go over and rustle through. He didn't rustle through all the scrolls. I don't know if you've seen these scrolls. These are big. They handed him Isaiah. He knew exactly where to go. And he opened the book and he found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. What did Jesus do? He left out the last line. Why did he leave out the last line? Because this was not the Messiah coming in a day of vengeance. This is the Messiah coming and doing all of those things. He had to suffer. He had to die. He had to redeem his people. There will be a day of vengeance. There will be a day coming. He will come again. He will come again and he will purge evil from this earth for all time. And heaven and earth will be restored and we will all be together, and the nations of the world will rejoice, and they will bask in the everlasting light of, of, uh, of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel message, and this is what we proclaim as this church of Living Water Community Church. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this um, time that we've set aside to study your word. Lord, we thank you for your words through the prophet Isaiah. Lord, there's so much uh, learning and meaning here for us. Um, We pray that we would um, dive into these words on our own time, uh, that we would have a deeper understanding of the gospel message, and that we would see that you are at the center of all of history, that you are at the the center of our salvation, that your uh, plans of old will be executed, they will not be thwarted, there's no king that shall rise that you have not put into power, and there's no king that shall fall that you did not have your place in how that came to be. You will reign, and you will reign forevermore eternally. And Lord, your posture is crying out for people to come to them. You are calling them to seek after you. You're reaching out your arm. You have already done all that needs to be done to come into your presence. Lord, we need only to come. We need only to respond to that message. We pray that, um, that we would be your people of this church and we would live according to the principles of this book, but more importantly, that we would proclaim the, the true message of the gospel, that we would help people understand who you are. We would help people understand that they sit across a wide chasm for which they have no hope of crossing except through the work of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in your name. Amen. 